following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, good morning, everyone. Glad you're here. Uh, As we come to worship the Lord this morning and look into his word, we're uh, continuing our journey through the book of Daniel. Uh, the first half of the book is uh, full of just some great stories of God's deliverance for Daniel and his friends. Uh, in chapter 7, uh, it takes a very hard, sharp turn, uh, and the, the remaining part of the book is a series of visions that Daniel has looking towards the future. And um, how many of you want to know what's going to happen next? Anybody? No, you're good for today. You don't really care, right? Right? No, we kind of want to know what's going to happen next. We would love to know what's going to happen next. And, and you know, especially uh, if you look at the news at all or if you're aware of what's going on around the world, we just see the world is in great turmoil, right? Uh, and, and the questions are, how's it going to end? Right? There's a war in Russia, Ukraine. How's it going to end? It just keeps dragging on. Now there's a war in the Middle East. How's it going to end? What's going to happen? Uh, conflict increasing and growing in places like Myanmar and Nigeria and other places in Africa. And just around the world, there's, uh, there's these crises, uh, these wars. And, and, there's, and on top of that, there's just social changes going on. We just, if you're a Christian, if you believe in moral values, you just, you just see moral, the moral collapse of the world around us. Uh, of a sense of right and wrong, and people are just doing and believing just more and more crazy things, right? And it's like, where will this end? Does this just continue on like this forever? Uh, does it change? Does it end? What's going to happen next? Are things going to get better? Are they going to get worse? We would love to know, wouldn't we? Well, for Daniel living in Babylon during the captivity, uh, along with really all the Israelites who had been drug away from their homeland and were living there as basically captives, as exiles, um, they had that same question. And it, for them it was a bit more pressing maybe because uh, they had been a people who had lived for many hundreds of years under the idea that they were God's covenant people. Right? Abraham, uh, God had given all these amazing promises to Abraham about uh, his descendants, that they would be like the sand of the sea, there would be so many, and that they would become a great nation and a great people and a kingdom, and, and really a kingdom where God would be the center of that. And they saw over uh, from Abraham up till David and Solomon, they saw those promises one by one fulfilled. Um, they became a great people. They became a huge multitude that couldn't be counted. They became a great nation with a king and their own land. And God gave them, I forgot that one, the promised land. He promised to give them land. Yeah, they got the land, right? All those things were fulfilled. But then we know that from Solomon to the time of the Babylonian exile, things went downhill a lot, right? And they turned away from God, and finally God... Uh, allowed them to be captured by Nebuchadnezzar and drug off because of their sin and, and their judgment. And so for the Israelites, the question for them is, okay, what happens next? Do we just, you know, learn to speak Persian or whatever language, I don't even know what the time 
learn a new language? Do we just, you know, get a new permanent mailing address? Do we just, like, what's going to happen next? And so uh, that's really the focus of the second half of Daniel. What's going to happen to the covenant people? Does God still care for them? Does God still have a plan for them? Are they still going to continue as God's people? Or are they just going to all become Babylonians? Right? What's going to happen? Um, and so, so the same thing's really true for us. And, and uh, interestingly, many of these prophecies look uh, at history. What to us now is history. It was future for them. Uh, but it also looks to our future. Right? And so um, we looked last week at chapter 6. We're actually going to skip chapter 7. Not because it's not important. We're actually going to come back to it. Because chapter 7 has the most Christ-focused um, visions. And, and I want to put that to the end for several reasons. One, because it will begin our Advent season. We'll begin Advent looking at chapter 7 and its focus on Christ. But also because it, it really helps bring a more happy ending to these visions. Right? Um, so we're going to begin the sad but end happy. Right? So uh, today we're going to look at chapter 8. Uh, and... Um, we're just going to jump right into it. It says, In the third year uh, of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. After that, which appeared to me at the first, and I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Now this is actually, if, you, if you've been going with us through Daniel 1 through 6, you know that in Daniel chapter 6, last week we looked at Daniel and the lion's den, or Darius and the lion's den, uh, was, was actually quite some time after Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is actually chapter 5, the handwriting on the wall story, right? And at that time, Daniel was about 62, 63 years old. Uh, in chapter 6 with um, Darius or Cyrus, he is now in his 80s, probably 82, right? So when we jump into chapter 7, we go back in time, back to the time of Belshazzar, when Daniel was in his 60s, right? And so it's so kind of rewind a little bit to pick up these visions that he had. Uh, so he's going back a little bit to the, this reign of King Belshazzar, which means, this is important for you historians out there, means it's still during the, the Babylonian kingdom, right? Still in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, even though he had died. And it's before the kingdom of, of the Medes and the Persians, which comes next, right? So for, for Daniel uh, in, in chapter 7, uh, these are still things in chapter 8, these are things that are still future, even though in chapter 6 they would have been, some of it would have been history. Got that? No, you're totally confused, right? Well, just stick with me, right? Uh, so, so Daniel's kind of gone back in time in, in chapter 8, and... Um, uh, and this vision comes to him, and in the vision, he's probably in Babylon, but it appears that in the vision, he's kind of transported, or he's seeing things in a place called Susa, a city to the south of Babylon, 150, 200 kilometers, um, and it's at this place called the Ulai Canal. It was actually a man-made canal that they used to transport goods in that region, and um, no longer there, it's been uh, deserted. But at the time, it was this big canal. And, and at, the, at Susa, where Daniel was, they know from, because the remnants of it are still there, that it was 900 feet across. So it was about 275 meters across. So this is not like a little, like, you know, we've got some canals around Chiang Mai. You could throw a rock across them. This is a massive canal. Massive, right? 
And so just get this picture. He's out there, kind of this desert, uh, desert scene with this, this huge canal running along, right? And it says in verse 3, I raised my eyes and I saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. I think I have, I think my next slide should be the ram. Yeah, there's the ram. We've got a ram. Um, and it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Uh, now, if you've seen rams, there's a picture of a ram. Uh, rams typically have two horns, so there's nothing unusual about this being a two-horned ram. Uh, but uh, in the vision, uh, what's unique is that the, the horns are not the even height or size. One is higher or bigger than the other, longer than the other. And the, the bigger one comes up later. Um, and... Uh, this ram charged everywhere, north, south, east, and west, and no one could stop it. Did whatever it pleased, right? And we know from Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, which really kind of sets the stage for all of these visions, uh, that uh, God showed Daniel that there would be four kingdoms that would come, right? And four kings that would come and rule kind of over, over the period of history, right? And so this vision actually points to, um, you know, the kingdom of Babylon has kind of come and is about to end. And so what we get is the second, a picture of the second and third kingdoms. And the first one of these is, just, is described as this ram, right? Uh, and it uh, certainly points to the, and represents the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Which if Daniel was writing this in the third year of, of Belshazzar, we know uh, that, that Belshazzar reigned for eight years. Right? So what Daniel's seeing here is things that are going to happen in five years. Now, he didn't know that. And, and in fact, at this point, he's not even sure what it all means. But these are things that are going to happen pretty quickly. Right? The Medes and the Persians are going to break on the scene, and under Cyrus, they are going to conquer the Babylonians and put an end to the Babylonian kingdom. Okay, then in verse 5, it continues on. As I was considering, pondering this ram, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth. Without touching the ground. Okay, I got a picture. Wait, here it is. There's the ram. Who? Flying. This is a flying ram. No wings, but he is flying, right? Not touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. Now, typically, if you know anything about goats, goats also normally have two horns, right? If they have any. They don't always have them. They usually have two. So this is odd that this one has a, a horn between its eyes. And it, it's important that it's between its eyes because it doesn't mean that it, like, it had two and one got broke off. Right? This is weird. This is just weird. This is a unigoat, a unicorn goat, a, a cross between a unicorn and a goat. I don't know. It's a, it's a weird creature, right? And um, so he came to the ram with the two horns. I don't have a picture of this, but you can imagine this. Okay, here's the flying, flying ram meets two-horned, I mean, flying goat, one horn, meets two-horned ram, right? Um, and he came to the ram of thorns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. Okay, so not only is this a one-horned goat, but this is an angry goat. This is a goat with anger management issues, right? He's ticked off. He's angry. Powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, right? So... Um, 
So now we've got a hornless ram, right? And he, he attacks the ram. And he gives this picture of this angry, uh, wrathful, vengeful uh, goat striking this ram and busting up its horns. And then it says uh, that the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Okay, so it doesn't take a lot of imagination to picture. This is like defeat, right? This is brutal defeat. Breaking off the horns, trampling it to the ground. Uh, no one could rescue him. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. All right, so at the pinnacle of his career, of his success, when he's exceedingly great, like an unparalleled greatness, all of a sudden... The horn is broken off. Broken. It ends, right? And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Again, conspicuous here means not normal, right? Because uh, uh, it's pretty weird to see a goat with four horns. Weird enough with one, but now there's four. So, okay, so weird on top of weird. All right. So, um, so we get this, this picture. And uh, so... Again, going with this kingdom theme, clearly it's evident that the Medes and the Persians are going to be attacked from some kingdom in the in the east who, who or in the west who comes from the west attacks them and with a vengeance uh, just crushes them. Right um, now, these are kind of short descriptions. It's kind of brief because really what we're trying to get to is the third figure, which is the little horn. Right. So in verse nine, I guess you got this now. This four-horned goat, right? And it says, out of them, out of the four horns, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Uh, And uh, the glorious land, or the beautiful land, if you're an Israelite living in Babylon, if you heard the word, the beautiful or glorious land, what would you think of? Home, right? Home. The promised land, right? And that's what it refers to, the glorious land, the promised land, Israel. And it grew great even to the host of heaven. Okay, so he's scaling up to to like the level of of God. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Right? Uh, So that's this image, right, of this, this, this little horn getting great power and even throwing down the stars, as it were. Um, and it became, from there it became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts. Okay, the prince of the hosts would be a reference to God himself. So this, 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 per, this ruler uh, ascends to a place of, of, of really confronting not only God's holy ones, but God himself, like taking on God himself. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Okay, so if you're an Israelite reading this and you're thinking of the, the glorious land and Israel and it's coming against it, um, in this are some, some promising things, right? Because he's talking about uh, the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. He's talking about the sanctuary or the temple. And so it's a picture that um, should give them a little bit of hope in knowing that we, we are going back, right? The promised land is not ended. Like the promises of God are not finished. God's still got a, a plan for us. And we will return and we will rebuild the temple and we will resume worship there. So this sounds kind of like good news. Wow, right? Except that 
it says that he's going to end the burnt offerings, right? And that the place of the sanctuary is going to be overthrown. Well, that's kind of discouraging news, right? And a host will be given over to it, that is to this little horn, together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. Right? That's an important phrase. Remember that, because of transgression. All this comes about because of transgression, of sin that's still hanging out in, in Israel with the Jewish people. And it, that is, this, this, this little horn will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke. So all of a sudden, these two kind of and probably angelic beings show up in the scene. And one of them asked the other, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes it desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? So to, to translate that rather complicated question, he says, well, how long is this, this persecution of the temple and God's people going to last, and of God himself, this coming against God, against his temple, of ending the sacrifices of of desecrating the temple. How long is this going to last? And he says, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Um, then, this, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Okay, thankfully this ends with a little, little bit of hope, right? Some bad things are going to happen. But in the end, after a period of 2,300 uh, evenings and mornings, uh, the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state, and presumably temple worship will resume. Right? They'll, be, they'll begin to offer offerings again and to honor and worship God. Right? Uh, now, of course, this is the most detailed uh, part of the vision. It has the most information because it's kind of the main point. Right? Um, the first two, the ram and the goat, were just trying to get us to the little horn. Um, and uh, it pictures uh, the rise of power of someone who comes against uh, the Jewish people in the Jewish land and Israel and the temple, right? With tremendous fierceness and persecution. Um, great to the host of heaven, throwing down the stars, whatever that means. And great is the prince of hosts, who's probably God. And the sanctuary is overthrown and the burnt offerings are taken away. And all of that is because of transgression, right? Because of sin and wickedness in the land. And truth is thrown down. People disregard God's truth and his revelation, the law and the scriptures, right? For 2,300 mornings and evenings. If you're good with math or if you have a calculator, 2,300 evenings and mornings would be about seven years. Some, some scholars believe that, that it means 2,000, meaning half of them are evening and half of them are mornings, which would be about three and a half years. Um, probably, though, it's 2,300 days, seven years. Um, and during that time, uh, the temple is trampled, and the Jewish people are trampled underfoot. All right, so, um, so verse 15 it kind of con- continues on, and there's this, this, thankfully, there's some explanation, which is helpful. So verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. So here's this perplexing thing, and you can imagine Daniel uh, trying to figure this out, like this two-horned ram, what are the two horns, one one-horned goat. What does this mean, right? Flying goat, flying across a flying goat, right? Um, he's trying to wrap his heads around it. So this little horn and uh, and this great persecution, right? He's trying to sort all this out. 
Um, and behold, while he's trying to understand all this, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, so kind of in the middle of this canal, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. In other words, he passed out, right? So that's what happens when you meet, like, angels and, and God. Like, like, you know, it's terrifying. He passes out. But he said to me, uh, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Yeah, the time of the end. Now here comes the first kind of big theological problem in the, in the account, right? What, what is the end? Now, of course, for us living long after these events, uh, the end for us is always future, right? Nobody says, well, the end happened last week. <laughs> you know, that can't be, because if it happened last week, then it's over, right? It's over. So for us, we always look to the end being future. So as we read this, we would think, well, this must mean something like the end, like the end of the world, right? Um, but uh, the end can mean the end of many things, right? And it can mean the end of an era, the end of an age, the end of a kingdom, the end of a lot of things. And we know, uh, because we have the advantage of looking back at this uh, with how history did unfold, that uh, this is not the end of the world or the end of the end or the end of time, uh, but it is an end of an era, the end of an age. Uh, and specifically, it would have been the end of this second kingdom, this kingdom of the goat, um, uh, that, that this happened, right? Uh, but more importantly, it probably points to the end of a time of sin and wickedness and rebellion, right? Because we know that this happened as a result of transgression and that, that sin in, among the people of Israel um, continued to grow and culminate. And so um, he says it is for the time of the end, meaning the end of this season of wickedness and rebellion against God. Um, uh, and, and, and as we'll see as this unfolds how, how this came about it's pretty certain that, um, that, that this end happened uh, as we'll see so let's look, look at his explanation though let's kind of get to the end by looking at the beginning and his explanation uh, starts in verse 18 he says when he spoke to me I had fallen into a deep sleep in other words I passed out with my face to the ground but he touched me and made me stand up and he said behold I will make known to you what, will be, what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. Important phrase. At the latter end of the indignation. And that's why we know that probably this isn't the end of the world. But uh, indignation here is the Hebrew word that is most frequently translated wrath. Right? At the end of wrath. Um, and and it, refer, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Right? Uh, for the ram you saw with the two horns... These are the kings of Media and Persia. Right, so this all points to, and again, results from um, a season when, when God is filled with wrath because of sin. Right? And he pours out his wrath uh, on, uh, in this case, Israel, on, on the Jewish people. Right? But it starts uh, with the ram, right? The ram. And he said, he, said, he said, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So not a surprise if we looked at uh, Daniel chapter 2, we know this is kind of what happens next. But what's interesting is that the, the two horns are significant, right? So it's not just the ram, it's not just, well, the Medes and Persians are going to come, but he describes it in amazing detail. And again, these are things that haven't happened yet for Daniel, right? Um, 
What are these, what's the significance of these two horns? They grow kind of at different times, and one outgrows the other. Well, first of all, the ram was a fitting symbol for the, the kings of the Medes and the Persians because uh, they would carry uh, a gold head of a ram when they marched into battle, right? So that was kind of their fighting mascot was a ram. So that, that was significant. But more importantly, uh, this army would be led by Cyrus, uh, who would lead the Medes and Persians to defeat Babylon, uh, specifically during the time of Belshazzar. And if you go back to chapter 5, you see the account of that, right? The handwriting on the wall. But what's really interesting is that unlike most kingdoms, like, why is it called the Medes and the Persians, right? Why is it the Medes and the Persians? Who were these people? Well, it was actually two kingdoms, the kingdom of Media and the kingdom of, of Persia. And um, Cyrus, interestingly, was both, right? His father was a Persian and his mother was Median. And uh, he grew up in Persia, which was actually the lesser of the two kingdoms, right? Media was, had grown to be kind of a power. Uh, Persia was basically nothing. But uh, Cyrus gained control first in Persia and then uh, got into power in, in Media. And over time... Persia actually became the dominant kingdom, right? So what happened, right? There was a shorter horn, and then later a second horn came and it outgrew the first, right? So it describes perfectly, perfectly uh, the rise of power of Cyrus. Um, and, it, uh, and it describes him, you know, nothing could stop it. And certainly he was uh, unstoppable. And he defeated the Babylonians, and pretty much once he defeated the Babylonians... Everything else was easy, right? And he kind of conquered the world and set up the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, right? So that's the first, that's the first one, the ram. Then there's the goat, right? Verse 21, and the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is its first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Okay, so the second one. Kingdom is Greece, right? Which uh, fits well. Greece was to the west of uh, Babylon and Israel, and it, and it came. And its first great king, of course, was who? If you study history, you should know that. Right, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. And uh, I won't go into a lot of history. This is fascinating, but we just don't have time this morning to watch a video on Alexander the Great. But he was an amazing guy, right? Uh, and he um, rose to power when his father who was ruler died and uh, was murdered actually and Alexander was all of 20 years old but he had been trained by the philosopher of Aristotle right he was a student of Aristotle he was very smart very gifted very bright and at 20 years old he becomes ruler uh, over Greece and he um, remember, remember the goat remember the goat is what is the goat happy no, the goat is what? The goat is angry. Angry, angry. Why was the goat angry? Well, he happened to be angry because the Medes and the Persians had not been very nice to Greece. Right? They had been in many, many battles, and uh, the Medes and the Persians had de defeated the Greeks over and over again. And they'd actually conquered a number of their cities and were controlling a large region of territory that had belonged to the Greeks. And the Greeks were not happy about this. They, they wouldn't say, well, oh, it's okay, you know, 
Nebuchadnezzar was cool. We're good. No, no, they were angry. And Alexander himself specifically uh, probably inherited this anger from his father, uh, was, was just uh, out to get revenge on the Medes and the Persians. So when it says he comes flying across the land, it means he comes with incredible swiftness, and he comes with wrath because he, this is not just about conquering, right? Like Cyrus just wanted to have a lot of territory, right? He wasn't really angry. He just was power hungry. Alexander is not power hungry. He's angry. And he comes against the Medes and the Persians with vengeance, right, with wrath. And so you get this picture of him coming. And he doesn't just subdue the ram. He crushes it. He tramples it to the ground. He is, he is ticked off and he is angry. What's remarkable is uh, Alexander's campaign against the Babylonians took only a, about a year. Like, so less than a year, three big battles, and he, he crushes them. So he comes with lightning speed, right? And there's a lot of other things we could talk about, his, his conquests. Uh, after he conquered the Babylonians, he kept going. I mean, the Medes and the Persians, sorry. Uh, he keeps going all the way uh, almost to India, and he conquers this huge, vast region. And so that's why he gets the title Alexander the Great. And as the prophecy, the vision, he said, well, he was exceedingly great. He was exceedingly great. Um, after he con- kind of conquered, ran out of things to conquer, he returned to Babylon and... Uh, um, uh, and uh, the, the end of his life was a little bit sad. Um, he returned to Babylon. He got sick with a fever and died at the age of 32. So 12 years, he probably never went home. 12 years of battle, gets back to Babylon. Uh, many think it was perhaps a malaria, so he got bit by a mosquito and died. <laughs> so there's, there's greatness, right? Alexander the Great. Um, one positive note that we need to highlight about Alexander the Great is that he spread the Greek language all over the world, or all over that, his empire, which really paved the way for uh, Jesus and Paul and Peter to be able to spread the gospel in a common language, right? And so if you know anything about the New Testament, it was written in what? Greek, right? And at that time, everybody could read Greek because of Alexander the Great. So good job, Alexander. Uh, but again, this is not the main point of the story. Alexander and, 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 and the, you know, his conquest just brings us to the little horn, right? So verse 22, as for the horn that was broken, so he gets bit by a mosquito or whatever, he dies, right? Uh, in, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And the latter end of their and at the latter end of their kingdom, right, these four kingdoms, when the transgressors have reached their limit, okay, there's that phrase again, right? When when sin has has reached its limit, it's maxed out, right? It's maxed out. Um, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Okay, so he comes against the saints. He comes against the people of God. And by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, that is God. And he shall be broken but by no human hand. 
He shall be broken, but by no human hand. In other words, nobody's going to kill him. Nobody's going to assassinate him. Uh, he's going to die by God's hand. All right, so what, ha- what is this about? Who is this? Well, after Alexander's death, um, he left this huge power vacuum. And several of his generals thought they deserved to be king in his place. But um, none of them could agree on, on who. And so they kind of fought each other. And over a period of years, uh, the kingdom basically settled out into four kingdoms under four of his generals who kind of came out on top. But none of them had the power that he did. And the kingdom was divided into four, four parts. Uh, and the thing that's important is the, the kingdom, uh, which, which we know as the Seleucid Empire... Uh, and many hundreds of years later, uh, well, a couple hundred years later, uh, a ruler comes to power, right? And we know that this uh, power, um, that this ruler was Antiochus Epiphanes, right? or Antiochus IV, right? But what, what's important about uh, this is we need to just go back again and highlight again, because it's so important, the reason. Why? Because here's the, here's the thing. God restores his people. God brings them back to the promised land. God tries to keep his covenant. But Babylon is going to get repeated, right? Uh, judgment is going to be repeated again. Why? Right? Does God not care about his people? Right? Well, why did they end up in Babylon in the first place? Because of sin, right? And, and, uh, and unfortunately, they don't learn their lesson, right? They don't pay attention to the lesson of history. And it says that transgression is going to reach its limit, right? When transgression maxes out, God is going to allow this bold-faced, deceptive king to arise and come against Israel, right? It's kind of like, have you ever been to a, a, a water park? They have all these splash things and water and slides. And one of my favorite ones I love just watching, it's kind of fun, is they've got this giant bucket, right? Way up high, have you remember seeing these? You ever seen this? It's a big bucket. I mean, the size of a living room. Huge, right? And at the top, they've got water streaming into it, right? And it just keeps streaming in and streaming in and streaming in. And then eventually, what happens? It gets full and it tips over. And all of a sudden, hundreds of gallons of water just come blazing out. You're standing over. It just knocks you over, right? And this is fun. People pay money for this, right? This is fun, right? Uh, that's such a great picture of this. The transgression has reached its limit, right? Their sin is piling up, piling up, piling up. And, you know, God is patient. And God endures our sin and our wickedness. But there comes a point when... It's at its limit. And God is patient no more. And judgment falls. Right? And that's exactly what, what, what this is a picture of. Uh, remember back in 19, he says, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, the wrath of God. But there comes a time when God's wrath will fall again on Israel because they still walk in sin. Right? They still dishonor God. They still turn away from him and worship false gods. Right? Uh, and of course, there is good news that the Jews will be restored to the glorious land. The temple's rebuilt. Temple worship is again practiced. But um, because they're not faithful, God's going to allow 
this crazy man, this madman, to rise up with incredible power that will come against them. Right? Um, and we know that this ruler was Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, he was a, a brutal and horrible ruler who persecuted the Jews terribly. And again, we don't have time to go into all the historical little tidbits. But if you're interested, uh, read the books of First and Second Maccabees. And Judas Maccabees uh, led a revolution against, eventually against uh, Antiochus and his successors and was able to defeat them. Um, but the books of First and Second Maccabees record some of the atrocities against the Jews. And it says that he threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them, right? It doesn't mean that uh, Antiochus somehow caused the stars to fall, but the stars here represent the people of Israel. Right? He throws down the people of Israel, the Jews living there at that time, and he tramples on them. Uh, Antiochus' persecution of the Jews was notorious, and it probably began around 170 B.C. with the assassination, assassination of, the, of, of the high priest at that time. Um, and during this period, uh, he executed thousands of Jews. Uh, and he was just a bad-tempered, bad person, right? Uh, on one excursion, he had gone to battle against the Egyptians, and uh, he got beat badly, and he came back to Jerusalem just angry and ticked off, right? And so uh, to take out his anger, he plunders the temple, taking all of its treasures and furniture. And uh, the book of Maccabees says he committed deeds of murder. In fact, it says that he slaughtered some 80,000 men, women, boys, and children uh, just in his rage, right? Uh, Maybe maybe that's an exaggeration, maybe not, but the point is he he was horrible. He was horrible. and not only did he uh, oppress the Jewish people, but eventually he brought his craziness and his, uh, his vehemence against the temple itself. Uh, and he uh, 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 stopped temple worship and then eventually uh, erected a, a, an idol image of Zeus in the temple and started sacrificing pigs. Do you know anything about Judaism? That would be like the worst of the worst, right? The worst of the worst. Uh, and, and ultimately, his goal was to turn Jewish people away from worshiping God to becoming full-on Greeks who worshipped Greek gods. His goal was to eliminate the worship of Jehovah, of Yahweh, and to replace it with the, the worship of the Greek gods. That was his goal. Uh, so he did many other horrible things. We just don't have time to highlight all of them. But, for example, if a, if a Jewish mother circumcised uh, their baby, which was in the law, he would kill both the baby and the mother. Right? Uh, he persecuted them terribly. And it says that this will last for 2,300 days. Uh, and we know that uh, this persecution began um, around 170 uh, and, and ended in 163 uh, after his death. And, in, and then in 164, shortly after that, the temple was, was rededicated. Right? Um, it's important to highlight here that, uh, that God allowed uh, this to happen because of the sin of his people, and not just to judge them, but out of his grace to turn them back. Right? Um, he, he wanted his people back, and he saw that they had reached a point kind of of no return, and that if something didn't happen, they, they would go into idolatry forever. 
And so God allowed this terrible judgment to bring them back. And, and it worked, right? They, they turned back to God. They, they reinstituted temple worship. And we see that temple worship continuing until the time of Christ. Now, of course, at the time of Christ, they were faithful, they were devoted, they were confused, right? And they had lost sight of, of, of many of the heart of, of who God was, right? Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for many days. Then I rose up and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision. All right? And I did not understand it. Well, so of course, a lot easier for us to look back, look back, because you know, we saw what happened, so we know what we know, right? Um, uh, but for Daniel, this was all just overwhelming, and a lot of Horrible stuff that he saw, right? As this coming uh, failure of Israel to walk with God and the judgment that came because of it. Um, let, me, let me just wrap this up. Uh, and we may think, well, what does this have to do with us, right? I mean, it's sad for the Jews. They were, they were stupid, but thankfully we're not that dumb, right? Well, let's hope, right? Let's hope. Let's hope we're, uh, we're not like that. Um, but, but, but let's, let's just wrap this up by, by highlighting uh, four things. Four things. Uh, first, um, there's another little horn in chapter 7. And when we get to chapter 7, we'll see it. Not the same little horn. This little horn comes at the end of history. Truly at the end, right? Uh, and this certainly is uh, a reference to the Antichrist. And this little horn is really a prefigure or a, a smaller version of the greater Antichrist that comes at the end of history, at the end of time. Right? Um, and, and one of the points we can take away is that history often repeats itself, especially if we don't learn the lesson the first time. Right? Now, I know none of us wants to admit this, but ha- have you had to relearn a lesson more than once, right? Have you done really a stupid thing and like you should have learned, but then like you do the same stupid thing again, right? History has a way of repeating itself. And um, what we see is that this was not the last time Israel would turn away from God, right? Uh, it's, it's this ongoing cycle. It's interesting. Uh, there's probably been more commentaries written throughout history on the book of Daniel than any other book of the Bible. It's crazy. Um, people have been fascinated with the book of Daniel because it looks forward, right? And like, we're all okay with history, that's cool, but I want to know what's going to happen in the future, right? And so Daniel has been a book of incredible interest. And what's, uh, there's, there's a great sur- survey, uh, I can share it with you if you want, of a guy who went through all the, all the commentaries of Daniel from, from the time of, of, of uh, the fall of Jerusalem under 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 um, Antiochus Epiphanes until the present, right? And what's, what's fascinating is at every season, everybody thinks they're living in the time of the Antichrist, right? Over and over again. No, the anti, this is the end of the world now. The Antichrist is here. And they all have names for them. Certain popes, <laughs> they got often named as the Antichrist. Uh, certain dictators, right? Uh, whatever phase you're at in the world... This is the end, right? Well, of course, one of these will be the end, right? And so everybody thinks they live at the end, right? Um, 
that's just kind of how it works, right? But part of the reason for that is that these cycles repeat themselves, right? People turn away from God, and God, right, right, sin gets full, and God allows these horrible people to come to bring judgment, to get people's attention and turn them back, right? Uh, but the greatest of these will end with the Antichrist. And certainly Antiochus points forward to the Antichrist, the final bad guy who brings uh, terrible things, uh, which are described here only, only globally, and they bring them on the world and ultimately uh, on, on believers, on the church, right, on us. Um, it's a repeating... Uh, pattern, but what's important to note is that it's always for a limited time, right? Uh, God's judgment on Israel didn't last forever. It was it was two thousand three hundred days, seven years, or maybe three and a half years, depending on which version. But the point is, it didn't go on forever. That's important. That's important. Know this: no trial lasts forever, right? God will bring it to an end. It's for a season. God has a purpose in it. And when it's time is up, it's up, right? Uh, Antiochus didn't die. He died by God's hand. God put an end to him, right? God stopped it, right? Uh, He does not let it go on forever. That's important when you are in a trial, right? When things are going bad, when you're struggling, it's easy to feel like, this is hopeless. This is going to go on forever. It won't. Right? God gives these periods, these seasons, when he pours out his wrath on sin, but it ends. Right? Um, and, and that will be true at the end, too, with the Antichrist. Right? He will not reign forever. It's only for a season. Um, what do we do to prepare for such a time? Right? Um, now, right now, probably none of us are going through what the, those poor Jewish people did under Antiochus, right? Um, they went through horrible things. Um, but, but here's the thing. Uh, whatever it is, hard things you're going through, when you're going through really difficult things, maybe cancer, maybe disease, maybe family turmoil or strife or persecution, right? We don't say... Well, at least, you know, I'm not going through what those poor Israelites did under Antiochus Epiphanes. It's a good thing. (laughs) No, we don't say that, right? We go, no, I don't like this. I don't like this. God, please make it stop, right? None of us likes to suffer. None of us likes hard things, right? We want to avoid it at all costs. Is anybody with me on this one? Do you want to avoid hardship at all costs and suffering at all costs? Is anybody out there going, no, please, you know, I was kind of hoping I could suffer more. Anybody? Anybody? Just checking. Because if you're out there, you need mental help. <laughs> There's a drug for you. No, no, just kidding. Um, yeah, no, this, we, we, we want to avoid this. But the truth is, um, th- these things come, right? Uh, hardship and suffering comes. And sometimes we get caught in the crossfire, right? God sent this judgment on rebellious, sinful Israel because many of them had turned so far away from God, but there were righteous, godly people who were living there at the same time who got caught in the midst of it. Right? There were the saints who also suffered. And certainly in the Great Tribulation, um, God's going to prod his wrath on mankind in many terrible ways, but uh, unless, you're, unless you believe in the 
pre-trib rapture of the church, you know, then you, you all get to escape, but the rest of us have to go through it. So you take your pick on that one, right? No, hard things come, right? What are we doing to prepare for such a time, right? Um, uh, what are we preparing? Are we prepared to face suffering? We need to be, right? That's the, that's the warning here. We need to be prepared to face suffering. How will we respond when uh, those trials come, big or small, right? Uh, and we saw in the first half of the book, Daniel individually facing those kind of things personally, not as a nation, but personally, right? People wanted to kill him, wanted to throw him into the lion's den. How did he respond? He trusted God. Right? He trusted God. He was faithful to God. He, he kept his eyes on God. second thing we can learn from all this is that God is in control. Right? God is in control. I love that, that phrase, you know, that uh, Antiochus is going to die, but not by, not by sickness or disease. You know, God's going to take him out. Right? God allows these men. God allowed these men into power. He allowed them for a season. When their time was done, he took them out. Right? God is sovereign. Right? He's in control. Um, what's interesting is Alexander w- was great. I mean, he was unstoppable, right? And yet he comes back to, um, to, to, to Babylon, and probably he died of a mosquito bite, right? Conquered the world! But a mosquito got him, and he got malaria, right? Or maybe worse, maybe he just got a virus, right? And got a bad fever and died, right? Um, God is in control. And when God wants to take out an Alexander the Great, which, by the way, Alexander the Great, just kind of got a kind of idea what kind of guy he was, he thought he was directly descended from Zeus and another Greek god. I just lost it. But he, he thought he was a god, and he actually, he actually ordered people to worship him as god because taken out by a mosquito. I love that, right? God is in control. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, um, uh, it would, would be killed, but not by human power, right? Um, he was not killed in battle. He was not assassinated. According to the first Maccabees, he died of grief and remorse in Persia after being defeated in the siege of the city of Elymas, receiving word that his forces had been routed by the Jews in Palestine. All right, he, poor guy, died of a broken heart. Sad. That's sad. Um, God took him out, right? God, God took him out. So remember that in the midst of your trials, God is in control, right? And He will bring an end to the suffering in His time. So third thing, be faithful in suffering, right? And um, suffering could get worse. Maybe we are in the time of the end. Maybe the Antichrist is is out there. Um, I could name a few candidates. <laughs> I won't, because this gets put out like on Facebook and stuff. So I, I won't, but just use your imagination. Just pick some world leader of your home country. I don't care. And uh, maybe, or even worse, one who's running to be president in the next election. Um, I don't know. They're out there, right? He could be out there, or not, right? The point is, uh, if we're... Whether we are at the time of the end or we're just in one of the many cycles that this goes through, suffering could come. Persecution could come, right? 
things could get a lot worse. Um, and, and our faith will be tested. And we are, we are called to remain faithful in the midst of it, right? And the book of Revelation unfolds this, right? The, the first seven letters of the seven churches. There will come times of suffering and persecution. And Revelation 3, 11 says, uh, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers or the one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from uh, my God out of heaven and my own new name. Right, those things will be written on us. It means, it means God has us. He owns us. He's caring for us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right? Uh, remain faithful because those who overcome will receive a crown, will receive a reward, will receive an inheritance. Right? Uh, tribulations will come. Our task is to be faithful. Be faithful, right? To keep our eyes on, on God. Don't forget the lessons of history. Um, God sent this judgment uh, through Antiochus because sin had filled up to the full, right? That bucket had gotten full, and it dumped out, and God's wrath was poured out, right? Um, th- there's a time when sin reaches its limit, and 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 here's the thing: the righteous don't escape, right? Now, God carries us through. He protects us. He is with us. But it doesn't mean, for the, sorry, those of you who live in the pre-trib rapture, sorry, chances are it's not that easy, right? Chances are we get to suffer too, right? Some, we live in this world, and, and suffering is probably part of what is ahead for us. But be faithful, right? Uh, last thing. Uh, it will end. Remember, it will end. Now, of course, um, if, you're, if you're living during the days of Antiochus and you stumble across the writings of Daniel and you go, okay, 2,300 days, we're on day three. Okay, this could be discouraging, right? 2,000 how many days? Okay, this is, could seem like forever, right? But there's an end, right? There's an end, Right? And, and, and remember, God is faithful. He will bring an end. Mark thirteen twenty. And if the Lord had not, and this is speaking of the end, the end during the days of the final Antichrist, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, that's you and I who trust him, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Right? God's watching out for you. And it, it will end. So we just have to endure. And here's an important psychological truth. People who feel like it will never end and who lose hope go downhill quickly. Right? If you feel like this is never going to end. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that this is never going to end? I have felt that. And I felt like there's no way out. And uh, it's, it's desperate. I mean, when I was there, I felt desperate. And I felt in despair. But remember, it ends. It ends. It's, it's, it's a set time, right? And just keep your eyes, when you're suffering, keep your eyes on the finish. Right? This is not going to last forever. Right? That may end with you dying. 
Okay? But that's an end. And the good news is if you're in Christ, that's not the end. It's just the beginning, right? And death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Everybody say that. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to me. Ready? Go. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to me. Right? As you get older, you'll appreciate that more. All right? Uh, and, and here's the thing. It will not end ultimately because Jesus has already overcome. Okay? Jesus has already won the battle. Uh, John 16:33. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And, and Jesus overcame the world when he went to the cross, right? And when he gave up himself, he took on himself finally and fully the wrath of God, right? Uh, God poured out his wrath through Antiochus Epiphanes, but the next time God poured out his wrath, it was actually on Jesus, Right? And he poured out his wrath for all time and all history, for the sins of the world from the beginning to the end on the person of Christ. And Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. Um, and, and Jesus, it says in Isaiah, was crushed for our iniquity. Right? The sin that, uh, that was on us by his death, he brought us peace. Right? Isaiah 53 says, um, Jesus has overcome. And not only did he die, not only did he take our sin, not only did he take the wrath of God and die, but he rose again, right? He overcame. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered the evil one. And he ascended to heaven where he is now reigning and ruling on high. We won, right? We just haven't got to the final battle yet. But the victory is ours. Right? There's still a couple battles that have to be fought. One kind of big one at the end. Right? None of us are looking forward to that. But in the end, Jesus is victorious. And he has already secured that victory through the cross. He has already secured our victory through his resurrection from the dead. Right? He is the first fruits. Yes, we may die, but we will rise again and we will be with him forever. Right, So, uh, yes, it will end. And it ultimately will end with the, the perfect victory of Christ. Right? When he returns and he defeats every evil. And he puts an end to every tear. And he reigns forever. And we with him. Right? So let me just end again, close with this last... Uh, repetition of Revelation 3. Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Right? And we're going to prepare right now to take communion. And, and we're going to celebrate Jesus' triumph and victory. That, yes, he poured out his blood 
He experienced the full wrath of God as our substitute in our place so that we could, as it says, as Paul says, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Right? And I'm going to ask the, the worship band to come and I'm going to ask the ushers to come and we're going to pass out the elements and just... Uh, Remember, we have overcome in Christ. Through his death, through his suffering, through his sacrifice, we have overcome. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.